episode 172 above ground podcast recalibrating with jared r bowl disclaimer the host of this podcast timothy patrick and will foley are by no means medical professionals however having lived experience with mental illness themselves they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis by sharing their stories they hope to create connection by creating connection they hope to help you find your purpose and through purpose we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Coming at you live with real conversations about mental health from the peer perspective. it's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now your hosts, TPP and Will Foley. Hey, what is up everyone? Welcome to episode 172 of Above Ground Podcast. This is the final episode of our Suicide Prevention Awareness Month for September series, and we are finishing up September, and I just wanted to give a huge, huge shout-out to everyone that came out Sunday to the Out of the Darkness Walk for Rita, stopped by the Above Ground podcast table and saw Tim, saw me on the walk route. Everyone, thank you so much for being there. It was a great event. Uh, it was great to see people that I see every year and have come to know and become friends with and, and learn stories of. Uh, thank you so much. Can't thank you enough. Can't thank the uh, support of enough from the uh, Capital District Psychiatric Center team from Albany, New York. Thank you very much for being there. That was awesome. But it was great. It was a great event. We had a great day. So thank you to everyone who came out. Our next tabling event will be the Upstate Punk Rock Flea Market, which is happening Sunday, October 23rd at Empire Live in downtown Albany from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. It is being sponsored by Radio Radio X. Uh, Artie will be there spinning tunes. I'm not sure if Robbie Smidex will be there spinning tunes, but they'll be there all day spinning tunes, and there's some great, great vendors. Above Ground Podcast will be there with all the mental health and substance abuse and uh, resources. Also, don't forget Pogo Beard Company, which I'm sure will be next to. They'll be selling their abomination tattoo balm. That's right. I put it on all my tattoos. Go to Pogo Beard Company and .com and order some abomination tattoo balm. That's right. Awesome dude. Can't wait to see him again. That's Upstate Punk Rock Flea Market, October 23rd, Above Ground Podcast. Now, episode 172, Above Ground Podcast, recalibration. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to Above Ground Podcast. Above Ground Podcast. Because you can't serve below. That's right. What's up, TPP? Good morning. Yes. How are you, Will? <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on, dude. Really? <laughs> Uh, I'm doing I'm doing dandy. How are you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm smashing. I'm smashing, man. I'm smashing. smashing, smashing. Oh, this morning we are joined by Jared Bowl. Is it Jared R. Bowl? Is that how you would rather? Is it or are you good with just Jared Bowl? <laughs> oh, Jared's Bowl is fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jared is an author, man. He's uh, an author, uh, an actor, an a model. I'm sorry. I brain farted there for a second. Uh, Jared, it's great to have you, man. Um, I read your bio and I listened to a couple episodes of podcasts that you've been on recently. And mm -hmm. this is a mental health podcast, man. So I, I just want to know where you're at right now in your journey of recovery and, and everything and how you're doing. Uh, thank you. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. And, um, I, I guess how I'm doing, well, I'm almost 40. My mental health has taken many turns and twists, I think, as many as people do over the years. And um, my first challenges, I guess, started when I was uh, really young, I would say nine, 10 years old. Uh, and I would have massive, massive anxiety and panic attacks. And, and then I started having suicidal ideation. And, and uh, I, kind of live with those conditions pretty frequently. And then as I 
uh, got older and I got, I sought therapy, group therapy in my late twenties. Um, it's helped tremendously as far as kind of recalibrating my thinking patterns and how I navigate the world. So I'm doing much better these days, definitely much better these days. <clears throat> I noticed that suicidal ideation is a visitor only when I'm under periods of like extreme stress, extreme duress, like um, huge life-changing situations, then I can be triggered into, into those thinking patterns, um, but far less powerful than they used to be. Was that, now you say, did you have these thoughts as early as nine, 10 years uh -huh. old? As a, wow. Correct. Yeah. I, can, I just wanted to jump in because we talk about suicidal ideation a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, I, most people that are surrounded by this understand what it is. Can you sort of give us a little view into your ideation, if that's okay? Just because mm -hmm. I, I think people misunderstand what suicidal ideation is. Mm -hmm. Because I live with it. We both, Tim and I both live with varying degrees of this. So um, I'm just curious to know what your definition is for you and, and how that affects you. Sure. Yeah, exactly like you said, different varying degrees. As, as I understand it and as I've experienced it, mental illness and suicidal ideation is like a spectrum. So there's varying degrees of severity uh, that, that I've experienced as a kid that, that, you know, it's for some people, which is kind of why I wrote the book too. It's alarming for people to hear that at such a young age, someone can experience suicidal ideation because it isn't something we, first of all, we don't talk about it, which is the problem. Um, but it does happen. And people, I think, assume, or they think, why, like, how could that even be possible? Like, how could a child be thinking those things? And um, definitely is environmentally influenced. Um, they say that you know, children or, or youth, maybe teens, they have a better chance of not acting on suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts if there's at least one person who's stable in their life who can provide some sort of support. But if you don't have that single person, the chances of acting on it are far greater. I'd say in my in my youth, when I was a kid, the only reason I didn't act was because I did have one person who was so loving and caring and tender in my life that it made the pain go away. And that kind of, there was many life changes that occurred in my later, I was in my late twenties and my early thirties that got me to thinking about writing this book to bring a gentle awareness that there are kids out there younger than teens, because there are many resources available for young adults and teens for mental health and suicidal ideation in particular, but not very many for kids because just people don't want to acknowledge that it exists and that it happens. So I wrote this book to gently shed light on that issue so that it can be an open dialogue. But going back to like the spectrum of what it's like for me, it's as a kid, it was, well, I think that there's many different potential uh, causes or pushes behind suicidal ideation as far as the beginnings of it for, for some people. I think that there are some people who do it because they have guilty actions. So yes, yeah, so I guess I guess what I was saying is okay, there's different um, reasons why people might have suicidal ideation. And it's the kind of that spectrum uh, is not only in severity, but it's also in causation, right? So if you look at people who are older um, and they maybe have done something bad in life and they just don't want to deal with it. That's definitely one cause of suicidal ideation and suicidal actions. For me, that's not um, the, the stemming issue here. And a lot of times that isn't for kids either. That, that isn't a thing that kids experience. They haven't done something so bad that they're going to, you know, start thinking those things in general. Usually, and this is what it was for me, is such a lack of acceptance in life around you that you, it is so uncomfortable to exist. Like, you know, when you're told you're fat, ugly, um, stupid, um, poor, less than whatever it is of your circumstances. And if your surroundings around you are pointing them out or bringing them out or highlighting them or, or uh, segregating you because of those things, that can start at any age. It doesn't have to be a teenager. And young kids are affected by that. And for me, that's how it began. I was so ostracized as a kid because I was overweight. I was a, a feminine, I was a little effeminate kid. And um, the other thing too, was we moved around a lot. 
Um, so my family moved probably uh, in 15 years, we moved 30 sometimes. I can't remember the exact number. So that's on average twice a year. I can't maintain, you know, you don't maintain friendships or relationships. So you don't have any emotional stability around you either when that kind of thing happens. So for me, that was the beginning of it. And the major cause of it was this pain that I don't fit in. I'm not, I don't belong here. And being gay was just on top of all that, you know, so that's how it started for me. Yeah. You talk about being uncomfortable and be, and that's a, a real big leading cause because uncomfortability is very hard to deal with for people. Were you a, were you an army brat? Is that what caused all the moving or was it just no. like instability? Mm. No. We, well, my dad was in the Navy when I was born, um, but that was only a couple of years. He was never a, f- a full career um, service person. He was, so once he got out of the service, um, we still moved around. And, um, this was mostly just due to my parents' youth. They were babies having babies. I think I, they were 17, 18 when they had me. Oh yeah. Okay. That can explain a lot of, that can explain a lot of things. Cause I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're not even a full grown person and trying no. to raise another one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know, they're now they're, they're in their fifties and, um, you know, it's nice to see them growing up and I've kind of grew up with them. They're more like siblings sometimes. I'm sure. So. Do you, and not to cut, do you have a good relationship with them? Has it, de- or has it developed over the years? Yeah, it's changed. It's morphed over the years. It's really wonderful now. It was um, when I was a kid, really, really little, like before nine years old, like I was four or five. I had a very wonderful like childhood, my, you know, parents, well, my dad was never really emotional available. He couldn't be, but my mother was, and there was no real issues in the household aside from moving around. But then, um, addiction was introduced into the situation. And as addiction progresses, as it does without being arrested, it just gets worse and worse. And it did until I was 15. And then my parents separated and then I moved out, um, because it just got so horrendous um, that I essentially, I didn't know where my father went. He just disappeared. And then my mom was under the grips of her addiction, unfortunately. And then we, I felt like she essentially was gone. You know, when addiction takes over, it isn't the person that you know and love. It's the, it's the disease of course. And so they do become someone else entirely. And so I had essentially just cognitively written her off as sad as that is to say, I just assumed like she's this is never going to be the same. It's never, she's never coming back. She's gone. And so I left and just with the assumption, like I need to move on with my life because I can't stay here. It's not safe, but cut to my late twenties. Um, she remarried, got divorced, started cleaning herself up and turning herself around. And I'm one definitely where I like, don't tell me things are better or different. Show me words and actions have to match. And words and actions aren't matching. And so (laughs) when actions started to match what she was saying, then I was like, okay, I'm comfortable revisiting having a relationship again. And that's been now um, a 20 year or 15 year uh, reset and and, uh, reestablishing that relationship. It's been wonderful. And so I'm really lucky to have her. Some people don't get a second chance. You know, they lose their parents or whoever to addiction and they never come back. So I'm very lucky in that way. Yeah, that's great. And um, I just want to note on, on what you what we were just talking about with the suicidal ideation. I think the way that the way that you communicated it, the way that you put it into words is is, um, is great. I, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And on top of that, just to throw in that there is there is active and passive suicidal ideation, you know, mm-hmm. so the active obviously is is going to be a little bit more severe in a crisis mode and where the passive is like, you know, maybe things would be better, you know, just kind of thoughts that come in and go, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that that is, uh, it needs to be talked about a lot more for sure. Yeah, definitely. Especially. And I think too, with the, with the youth or the younger ones, it's probably more passive, you know, that dialogue is there and it's maybe just not coming to the surface as, as so active as it might in the teens, but as like as with many things with mental illness or 
you know, things progress unless they're arrested. And so if teens are acting out on suicidal ideation, it's because probably it's been there for a while and it needs to be discussed. Right. Right. And so often we take that thought as a, even as a child or whatever and, and judge it like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking like this. And these are mm-hmm. these are dark, bad thoughts. So I must be a dark, bad person. You know, mm-hmm. and we put those on ourselves. So, you know, it mm-hmm. just it just accumulates up and, you know, it, it can it can the end result could be, you know, terrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, children that, um, you know, go through the foster care system, too, I can't imagine. Um, bouncing around with that sort of uncertainty and and circumstances that are changing constantly, like ours were changing constantly too, and it's not identical. But it, I can I can understand, or at least I can imagine what something like that would feel like, and how it could definitely perpetuate those things um, in those certain in those particular groups of kids. Absolutely, I think that's the perfect word is uncertainty. I think that is the word. You you are um, I guess brought to to the mental health side through what you've been through. Is that kind of what I'm gathering? Cause you, you were more of a, an artist first and you were, you kind of um, use writing as I'm assuming as like uh, kind of like a distraction therapy type. And then you became more passionate on the advocacy side for mental health. Is that yeah. your own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be correct. That's correct to say that. Yeah. I've definitely always been active in some sort of art form as Will was saying, I've done modeling, I've done lots of acting, theater, some film stuff. Uh, I've done dance, um, classical ballet, Brazilian samba, all kinds of fun things. And writing has always been in the background. Um, It's not something that I've done publicly, but something I've done just for therapeutic. Um, I like to write poems and I would write like little short stories or, uh, but never anything you know, as huge as a book. And it was interesting how that kind of came about. It was, I had had sort of a, not a midlife crisis, but an early life crisis and life got different. And one day I was, I was having ice cream with a friend and I said, I think I'm going to write a book. And, and she said, what do you mean? What's, what's it going to be about? And I said, I have no idea. I just, now I just had this idea that I'm, I just know I'm going to write a book. And so I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> yeah. And congratulations on that. Um, so the, we're we're talking about good Oliver Dooley in the Palace of Keepers. I I, I want to hear about good Oliver Dooley and I, where did this come from? Is this is this character you essentially in 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 a different in morphed or is it a character that encompasses you but isn't you? First, yeah. So I guess first I'll say I wanted to create a space or a world that I wanted to be in. I was like, this is a place if I could choose to be in a place. I can't choose my parents. I can't choose the world. If I could choose and create a place, this is what it would be like. And good Oliver Dooley represents the highest and best version of myself. He is what, he's what I would aspire to be. And I can maybe be on a good day, but all the other characters are essences of me. All the other kids that are in there, they are magnified versions of different parts of my personality. For a fantasy writer, and the way you just explained it about that all the characters in there are different parts of you, is that something that you learned through dance and through acting? Because it it's I for me as a musician, every every song that I write is is a little piece of me, and most of them they're all autobiographical in one way or another. And I'm just curious to know how your process works as a writer to come up with this fantasy world as to how you disseminate characters from yourself. Because I'm wondering if it's an acting thing. (laughs) Oh, I see. Well, it's very layered. I'll say that. The story is very layered and the process is very layered. I really didn't know what I was doing because I said I just had this idea. I'm like, I want to write a book. I don't, I've never written a book. I don't know how to structure a story. Like after writing the first three chapters, I, I was like, I, uh, how do I go forward? Like, I don't even know what to do. So, so um, it was literally just a figured out as I went along process. And the, the I, I guess the idea for making the characters sort of magnified personalities of myself, I guess there's two things I realized when I started writing the book was I didn't actually need to imagine a whole lot because the world we live in really is spectacularly, incredibly out of this world amazing like the plants and stuff is kind of what i'm referring to i didn't have to invent a whole lot because there's so much variety of biodiversity in this world already i just had to use what we had and blow it up and so i did the same thing with my personality i'm like well i've had times where i've been really silly 
or uh, sassy, or I've been really um, just different (laughs) qualities. And I'm like, I'm going to make characters like these kids kind of just parts of my personality that I've experienced over my life. And I've experienced these personality you know, characteristics of myself through periods of time that have been months long, years long, and then they kind of fade and I, you know, I mature in some way. And so acting is help because acting, you know, you, you're really looking at yourself and a character in, in a script or uh, you're, you're building a character based on how you can understand that character. So you can do that through your own filters, of course. So I, I could say definitely acting helped, definitely helped as far as creating the story overall too, because I also know, I guess, how plot works and how character arches work without really having ever studied it officially in school. You know, I, I've just done enough of reading and, you know, performing to understand that. That's awesome. What is is for you as far as when you are in say a, a down cycle, how does your, how is your art affected in your down cycle? Does it become more manic and do you increase or does it actually lessen your ability to be artistic and look at it in a in a different way no you know i've never really even thought about it because art gets created no matter what and i mean i'll have days if i'm just really tired like yesterday i usually write a lot of my creative stuff on the weekends and yesterday i didn't do any writing i just didn't feel like it and so i don't punish myself or if it's that's that's how i'm feeling that's how i'm feeling and i and i allow myself to feel that just knowing that oh, tomorrow i can do more and so today i'll do some writing but when i'm feeling down it doesn't necessarily put me off from it it's more if i'm tired or just kind of needing a rest and so if I'm feeling down, which I've been feeling down, by the way, for several years because I'm in Montana and I don't want to be here. And I've been working very hard. It's a very dangerous area to live, actually. Well, I, yeah. I was going to say for you, it probably is. And I'm and just knowing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the state of the world we live in, I'm sure it's pretty dangerous. No, I've had, I've had death threats. I've had a gun held to my head. And, you what? know, growing up. Yeah, I've, it was... It's crazy. Is it, it's, is it because, I got to ask, how did you end up in Montana? Well, I'm from here originally, so my oh, parents, okay. everyone's here. Yeah, everyone, okay. my family's here. Yeah, okay. and uh, ended up back here because of this life change that wasn't. I was in LA modeling, okay. and then I was like doing seven shoots a week, and then suddenly it just stopped, which happens. You know, I've been modeling a long time, so that happens. Um, but then I had quit my job, and I was like. <sighs> I got this, this took a turn that I didn't anticipate. I, I made a mistake. <laughs> I made a mistake. <laughs> you know, so um, what happened was I was like, I have to refigure out what it's, what's going to happen with my life. And so I went back to school. So I came back to Montana and I lived with my sister for a little while. And that's where one of the incidences of a death threat occurred, which you would think of all the places, you know, wasn't in a bar, like picking up straight people or something like that's not a thing that. And some people do that, but it's not what I was doing to, and not that that merits a death threat, but I mean, right. no, absolutely not. That's, that's, <laughs> it, it's, it's more likely to happen if that happens. But I was at home with my, at my sister's place and I was in my pajamas watching TV. She wasn't even there. I was staying her, with her for six months while I figured out where I was going to go to school and all this. My brother-in-law's brother came in and just held the gun to my head. And I don't even remember what he said. It just kind of, you know, you I just got fogged over. Sure. And then he left. He, he left. So I don't know what happened, really. Um, I've only met him a couple of times. But anyway, so that was one of the physical. And then I've had like letters sent to me and, and things like this. Um, were these all, if I can ask, were these all pertaining to your sexuality? He, the, the gun, I can't say for sure. I'm going to say yes. Because wow. the hate, I've always grown up with with hate in Montana. Like when we lived here, I've always experienced hate. And it was interesting because as a kid, I was like, Oh, you know, you hear it'll get better. You know, I was bullied a lot, of course, but never had anything like a gun held to my head when I was younger. What the and, hell? And I figured, okay, it may be get better. Maybe it will get better. People mature. It's gotten worse than when I was a kid. There's it's a lot of worse. reasons why that is. Yes. There's a lot absolutely. of reasons why that is, man. So it's, yeah. it wow. is terrible. I, I'm, yeah, so you I'm trying what? to get out of here. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to go buy a copy of your book so I can at least help you try to get the fuck out of there. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? That's the least I can do. You know what I shared the fuck out of Montana. Let's bring him him to the East coast where he belongs. That's the the title of the episode. Yeah. Get the fuck out of Montana. (laughs) So, so uh, I just wanted to 
to something that you had mentioned earlier about like, you know, growing up and, and being maybe overweight or bullied or whatnot. It's just kind of uh, cool, funny, whatever you want to call it to see like, you know, you're in LA, you know, doing, you know, acting mm-hmm. and, and being a model and all these things. So it's like, you know, it just, mm-hmm. it, it just goes to show you yeah, it's a crazy world, but you know, good for you because you turned it around. You, you know, could have, you could have went down a different path and uh, it was like a double middle finger to everybody. Like, Hey, you know, now I have a book out too. So, that, so good on you. Yeah. You know, I have a friend who's a really, really close friend who knows my, my whole personal story. You know, he gives me lots of advice and I go to him. He's like a mentor. And he said something, he's like, definitely that some people have, and he says, you have this, this undying fight in you. He says, that is really amazing. He says to see you navigate all these things that happen and you fight, like he says, you just fight back and you keep going. And I'm like, you know, I can't say what is that attribute other than what it was something I was born with. I think something within people some kind of spark. I don't know what it is, but I have to say like, there's a a huge empty pit inside of me that is hungry to explore and find out and try new things, which is why I've done so many things. Cause I'm just always curious, like, what is that like? And what is it like to do this or model to dance? Like I'll do tap now, or I've done jazz and I've done mod just because I wanted to see what it was all like. And I just, I'm not afraid to do those things. And I think that that's probably what he's talking about. I think people a lot of times hold themselves back because of fear of maybe failure or exploring. Like, I don't care. Like, I just want to experience whatever this new idea is I have and see where it goes. That's, that's awesome, man. That's incredible. And I, so I, I kind of want to combine this because um, we're, we're peers and I, I'm a certified peer support specialist here in New York and the peer movement itself, the consumer survivor expatient movement actually started based out of the gay rights movement. And that's kind of where a lot of that started from when you learn history of the peer movement, people were getting released from mental institutions and, and things and they were, they needed, they needed to fight. So it's, it's, it's incredible how those two things have fed each other to, to, to help perpetuate change, even though change takes for fucking ever, as we know. But yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was kind of something on that note about peers and like mentorship, you know, I, something I've noticed about, I studied anthropology before I finished my degree in criminology. And I've always been fascinated with human behavior and, and its origins. And um, something I've noticed over time is if you look at different minor- minority groups, you know, uh, Native American Indian, for example, African American or gay people. The one thing I notice that's a little different about homosexuals or maybe trans people, especially, is that they typically lack someone in their home environment to have that peer or to have someone as a role model or someone who they can relate to. Whereas if you're Native American or African, perhaps not always, of course, as a generalization, but you have a family of the same origin. So if you're gay, sometimes you don't have that. And so you definitely, if unless you have gay parents by chance, which is more common now than it was even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you, you rely on other people in those communities that you eventually find to kind of raise you, re-raise you or, or mentor, mentor you. And I think that's really important aspect to, to di- little differences in minorities that I think that people experience. He mentioned uh, recalibrating earlier. I like that word. Um, so what, I guess, what are some things that you do to recalibrate? Uh, you mean like on a day-to-day basis or if I'm feeling low? Yeah, or- yeah. yeah. You know, but both, anything, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, when you're yeah, feeling low, what you can do to, to kind of, you know, we're all about sharing tools. So what yeah. are a couple of tools in your in your bat belt that you use <laughs> to to get yourself out of out of your cycles or or maybe even even just to keep yourself happy when you're happy. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be when you're down. What are some of your tools? I love water, so showering. Like if I'm in a deep spiral, I I'm like I can't think my way out of this problem. I have to do something physical usually and so I'll, I'll shower and have a reset. Uh, I love going to cafes and um, I do a lot of my writing in cafes. I know it maybe sounds cliche, cliche now, but that's, I've always done that. And so writing can definitely be an escape. Keeps me happy as well to be doing something creative. 
I love to garden. And so that's another reason I'm in an apartment. So that has been a hindrance on my happiness because the two happiest moments in my life have been when I have had an, the ability to garden. And I'm not talking about a flower pot in the windowsill. I'm like talking about major landscaping stuff that I like, I like to do. Um, so that is a beautiful distraction for me. And I have a great Dane. He's, he's in the bedroom because he's um, very, very uh, vocal and friendly. So he is a great antidepressant. He's a big goofball. That's super sweet. Yeah. So those things all help. Um, and I talk to friends who know my, you know, if I'm really in a deep, dark space, I, I have a couple of people I can call and say, okay, I can see it's happening. Just talk to me for a minute. Let's <laughs> talk about something fun, you know, um, to get me out of the spiral. Perfect. That's, that's important for sure. Is there a, is there something specific that usually you sense or feel when you're starting to be triggered? Obviously life, major life changes. And I, I understand because that's what affects me too. I notice and everybody, I, well, I can't say for everybody, but I know a lot of people that I've spoken to major life events and changes are, are a big trigger for people who have certain types of mental illnesses or, or disorders or even just anxiety in general. So is there something specific that you start, like, is there a place that you start to feel it first? How do you recognize it? Uh, yeah, uh, let's see. Well, and maybe, very... and maybe you can't even, maybe you've never thought about it either. I'm sure you have just by how in depth you are and how schooled mm-hmm. you are in yourself. I'm just wondering if you recognize, like wh- how you start to recognize it. Uh, yeah, there's definitely the first, I'd say that first is a thought and then there's a feeling, right? If I'm in a, if I'm thinking or ruminating about a problem that I perhaps can't fix and I want to, or it's going to impact me in a negative way, it'll scare me. Then I'm, I've been ruminating on it. Perhaps I've been thinking about it. I'm like, okay, this is, I can foresee, I can either anticipating a problem that hasn't even happened, which is a problem I have, or there's an actual problem. Two can be, both can be tricky, but the one that hasn't happened yet can be really tricky because it's an illusion. And I've convinced myself that it's going to be real. And so I'll start thinking that, that, or I'll think on it. And the magnitude of the problem will grow because I'm focusing on this problem. And I'm like, oh boy, this could happen. And then this can happen. And then this can happen. And then, so those thoughts then therefore initiate a feeling process of, oh gosh, this is not good. I need to, you know, I, I, I feel maybe tense, tight in my chest and my throat I, maybe my breathing will get shallower. I won't be breathing as, as, as deeply as I should be normally. The overwhelming sensation, though, that I get is out of control. I feel out of control, and therefore I don't feel safe, and I feel panicky. That's when it starts to really spiral from thought to feeling. Then I feel out of control, then I get panicky, then I get scared. Um, and these are these are adjectives for human conditions which are difficult to color with adjectives, but they're close representatives kind of of what, what it feels like. But it, I have to say, it feels scary. It just feels scary and dooming. Like things are about to fail and be bad and horrific. And it's going to be the end of the world kind of panic feeling. So it escalates. Excellent. Well said. It's like uh, you, you, as you were talking there, we have, Will and I have talked before about our anchors and it's like it reminded me of that when you were talking because it's like you're suffering over this you know point a and then you're adding more suffering onto these illusions as you say you know it's like the it's you're just putting more and more and more and more on something and you're adding these anchors of weight trying to drag along like you know mm-hmm. ghosts of christmas past mm-hmm. definitely and even sometimes just my idea of where i think i should be in life can trigger that cycle. Of course, I, could have it, absolutely. Like, I, ex- I did not expect to be Montana and I need to be out of here three years ago and it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. And I'm, and I'm panicking about it right now. because it's not. Well, you have you some know, legitimate reasons to be panicky. I, <laughs> yeah. I, and that, but that kind of, that kind of opens up another thing. How do you mm. know necessarily what's an illusion versus what's reality? Because the, like for me, myself, when mm. I'm experiencing that, something usually starts that thought, but there's some evidence that those thoughts could really happen. 
So I'm wondering how you decipher between illusion and the possibility that it's you might need to actually be proactive about something. That's definitely what you'd say, you know, doing my part. Like, what is it if I'm in a situation that isn't good? What, 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 do, I, what do I need to do to start putting the ball forward to, to make a change? If I'm not doing something to move whatever it is that needs to be moved forward, that I'm definitely causing an issue for myself that doesn't need to be. So I need to look at what I'm doing. And in, in the case I'm in right now, I can't do anything more than what I am doing to get out of here because I don't want to rent anymore, right? So I'm trying to move to buy. So that's why this is taking longer than probably just, I'm going to move and rent. That's, that's easy um, or easier. I'm trying to buy because I'm tired of renting. So that is stalling and delaying the process, but I'm doing every single thing I can and then some, probably even too much, to make that process happen. And the illusion could be something like, if I don't get out of here and buy a house, you know, there's gonna be another pandemic and interest rates are gonna keep climbing. I'm never gonna be able to afford a house. That idea is not actually true because I don't know that for sure, but I will believe it and I'll run with it and then I'll panic. And then anxiety will set in because I've convinced myself of the story that could happen, of course, it absolutely could happen, but I don't have any foreseeing knowledge that that will happen and I'm, believing it. And then therefore my state, my emotional state is changing because of that. More proof of the fact that our thoughts do create our reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's like, but again, we, I, I know this, I, I, I know this, <laughs> but I can't always get myself to fucking believe it. <laughs> and that like, but again, that's, it's just more like more truth that your your thoughts really do create your reality and they can and they can bring about those things that to happen mm-hmm. but you know you still have to navigate the the, yeah. the landmines so to speak mm-hmm. yeah I, I, go ahead no i'm sorry i didn't want to cut your thought off yeah i was just going to say uh you know in those cases and i'll call someone those people that i can trust that are real close to me and tell them what's going on and then will tease out those things that are not real or can't be known. Like you can't know, you know, and then I can focus on what I can do, kind of boil it down to the meats and bones. You can say um, meat and potatoes of the situation. Like what can I focus on here to change? And if there's nothing, then I just get to let it go and wait, wait and wait. And, but per- anyway, perfect. Perfectly said, man. Perfectly mm-hmm. said. I think that's uh, that's like cognitive distortion one oh one right there. It's if you can if you can bring yourself down to baseline and focus on what it is and what you can or you can't do. There's no Mm -hmm. you know, if you can't do anything about it, there's no reason to worry or to suffer, add suffering onto it. What's already there. Yeah. And this idea of separating it like, okay, that's the process of detachment from what's happening. Right. That like you said, well, I can't do that alone. Sometimes sometimes it's too powerful. That's why I need a support network to, to do help me do that. And with kids, like going back to suicidal ideation, that was the whole point in this book was to teach or to at least show how it's possible to detach from that voice, which intends to do me harm because it isn't me. It is this manifestation of either circumstances, environment. It's this evil voice that intends to see me suffer and intends to do me harm. And I don't have to believe it. And that for me was empowering when I learned that about it's, suicidal ideation. This is like almost like a villain in a story speaking in the back of my head that it wants to see me suffer and do harm. And I don't, I don't have to believe that voice. And so that's what the idea of taking it so that children can kind of understand that. And even adults detaching from that voice that obviously is not you, you know, it's this thing that has culminated as a result of circumstances and events that you can detach from and say, I don't want that that isn't me that's something else and by giving it a name like a villain it's easier to <laughs> identify you know it's easier to say like, sure. that's, that's the bad guy you know right they say so, name it to tame it so yeah yeah exactly yeah i um i wanted to touch back on your parents again because you said mm-hmm. something interesting about suicidal ideation and stuff and your parents addiction themselves did they have obviously being young okay and having it causes all kinds of psychological things, but were there issues in either one of them prior did, that you're aware of that they had mental health issues? 
I mean, now that I'm, I'm at where I'm at and I've talked to them quite a bit, you know, we've talked a lot over the years about our, our lives. I know now that, yeah, definitely mental illness has always been present and addiction, active addiction has always been present in the lineage of my heritage. It's always been there in varying degrees. And so they were not immune to that. That's for sure. Um, okay. They never brought it up though then like in the moment or as as a youth because i don't think they were aware they i don't think they were aware of what was happening you know for where your parents are they weren't talking about mental illness back then anyway mm -hmm. so it's it's yeah. one of those because your parents are my like around my age and I, and I can say that you know nobody was talking about this stuff 15 years ago like you know so yeah it's, yeah definitely even even one-on-one -on -one psychology um therapy has definitely changed you know even i mean my mom i remember her telling me that she went to a therapist in her twenties um, and it was such a taboo even, you know, that's just 30 years ago. So it was like, you're a really, really bad person and sick. If you have to do that. <laughs> yeah. There's that stigma. There's that yeah. stigma. And not yeah. to mention the self stigma that we put on ourselves either. Mm -hmm. But this is yeah. one way we combat that shit. We tell our story and we stand strong and we say, mm -hmm. no, it's not, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. In fact, if someone tells me they haven't been to therapy, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you might need you might need yeah. to reevaluate that situation. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I think I mean we've talked about it here. I mean, therapy is, you know, I, it doesn't matter if, if you, you know, have issues, if you classify as mentally ill or whatever you want to say. I think, you know, everybody can benefit from I'm going to therapy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, therapy is a, a very, very strong, strong tool, man. But again, we've said this, and I say this all the time, is that therapy is only going to be as good as you're willing to be willing to, to take part in it. I, I wanted to know, uh, I read real quick that you are a fan of Tolstoy, so I didn't know mm -hmm. if you had a favorite quote. Well, I, I mean, Anna Karenida is amazing. And at the very end of the book, Oh, I'm I'm gonna misquote it. It's it's so beautiful. I mean, he's so uh, such an amazing writer. And first, he's a historian, right? Um, second, a writer. Um, War and Peace was more like a historical recount of events. Right. Wasn't there was no like plot points like oh god, this is going on forever. Um, but Anna Karenina, he really was like, I'm gonna tell a story here, and the prose is amazing. And at the very end, one of the main characters in the story settles for a just a a peaceful, quiet life instead of wealth and, and prestige. And he is content with where he has decided to put his mind. And the way that Tolstoy just, you know, colors that is just so beautiful. I can't remember the exact quote now, but. We always finish up every podcast with three questions. And mm -hmm. let's, let's have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have a favorite or a least favorite word? I have lots of favorite words, that's for sure, because they make me giggle, like when I think <laughs> of them or, or when I say to say them. Um, uh, least favorite words. Totally caught me off guard on this one. I have, I have to think here for a minute. It's all right. You can name, you can name uh, just your, your favorite if you want. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want to do. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. There's... There's so many words I love. Like uh, I'm not gonna even. I can't even pronounce that one. I'm totally off today with my <laughs> trains of thought. But um, I love the word. I can't even say it. Well, as a writer, I can say like there are words that like come up to my mind like automatically just because of use that I'm tired of. I'm like, oh god, and it's the word said. I hate having to write the word said <laughs> because I have to write it so much. <laughs> Yeah, and there's only so many. There's only so many. Uh, yeah, so many variations of it too. Yeah, I'm like this is so repetitive. But as a, that's just as as a reader, you don't notice it. But as a writer, you do. Um, so there's that. Um, <laughs> and favorite words. Oh man, um, I'm totally drawn. It's all right. Okay. Yeah, it's all good, man. So I've I've asked. I used to ask people about their animals because mm. I'm a big animal lover and mm -hmm. and stuff and I I know you're an animal lover obviously you have you have sir what's his name sir sir louis mm -hmm. sir louis the, the great <laughs> dane 
Um, but I, I, I tend to jazz this question up. I improvise this sometimes when I hear something. So with, within your journey, what is something that writing this book taught you about yourself that you didn't know? That I could write a book that, in fact, I've written the second book, which comes out in September. There's a sequel. And awesome. I've written. Congratulations. Three. Thank you. I've written a third book now that is not related to these first two. It's a separate story. And I have four other books in mind already um, to, to write still. So I've, I'm going to be busy um, for the next several years because I just I keep getting ideas and I like them. I remember when I was writing the first two books, this this first one in the sequel, I was thinking, what am I going to do? Hmm. I'm a writer now and I have to keep writing, but I don't know what I'm going to write about. But now suddenly I've got like four, you know, five other ideas. I think that that's the one thing in the writing process too, that has been so helpful um, is I, I don't think about or criticize what I'm writing when I'm writing it. Cause I, I first like write it by hand and then I go back later and then I edit it and type it all up. So when I'm in the writing process of the first draft that's handwritten, I don't even question why it's happening like this. I just write it down and I just filter. The one filter I have is, does it move the story along? Does this serve the story in some way? If it doesn't, then I don't write it. But if it can be used, I'll write it down. And it may not use it later. So I, I give myself so much freedom to do what I need to do to just play. And then I don't have to worry about how perfect it's going to be or if it's going to be even useful for the story. I can change that later. Um, so that has allowed so many barriers to come down. And I think that's why I'm not afraid to have these other ideas. Like I have an idea for several other books. I'm like, these are going to be really fun and different. And I'm just going to write them and see what happens. Um, so to give myself that freedom is such a gift that I think so many people deprive themselves that writing has definitely given me acting dance have kind of done that. But as a dancer, as an actor, you're definitely limited to what you're being given. Like I'm being given a script. I'm being given choreography. Um, but as a writer, microwaves could fly if I want them to, as long as they fit within the context of what's happening. Right. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So, so much more freedom. That's awesome. I, I, I don't, so when you started to write Good Oliver Dooley, did you have several characters already in mind? Did you, do you flesh this out or does it, or is it like, oh my God, like I got this idea and you start, you wind up, you know, free writing like 15 pages and you go through it and then you're like, okay, well, I can see another character here. Or is it, or is it even more organic than that? You just have the first idea and then you just let it branch off. Um, that was when I hit that three chapter mark when I was like, how do I even do this? That's when I'd figured out how to do this. Like, this is how I think I will do this is I decided like I needed to have plot points to write towards. So I would think of things like, well, this could happen in the story. And then I would write towards that destination. And then as I did that, I'd be like, oh, it'd be nice to have another flower thing here, or maybe another person enter the story because there needs to be some comedy element into this piece because it's too heavy. Um, so depending on what I need or what I think I need, um, I'll add. But as far as planning it out to begin with, no, like I had good Oliver in mind. And then I had his two adoptive parents to start the story. Everything else, there's like over 75 characters in the story. All of those just came to me as I wrote it. I was like, oh, this would be fun. This would be fun. And then, but I did lose track at one point. I had to create a map. I had created a key because I couldn't remember the people I was creating and how they sounded and what they wore and what they did in that one part. I'm like, I don't remember any of this. So I have to create a, a map for myself to follow. So that was kind of interesting too. But I think we need to see an animated series about this. I was just, dude, I was just, I was, Will, I was just going to say that. I'm like, yo, when Hollywood picks you up, Jared, remember us, all right? Remember Hollywood, get Jared the fuck out of Montana and get his, yeah. get his new animated yeah. series produced. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That would be that would cool, be so an fun. animated series. Yeah, that would be awesome. It would be. Well, that's kind of how I see it, too. When I write, I see, I'm writing down kind of what I'm seeing. It's almost like it's playing out like a movie. So I just am like I'm describing what I'm seeing almost in my head, you know, as it plays out. Yeah, so that's kind of the process. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that with yeah, us. That, that was, was cool. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. love, like, I love hearing about the process. Yeah, and in, in these, this third book, for example, that's unrelated to Good Oliver Dooley, is 
gonna is so good over is more like middle grade you know younger kids but you know you, everyone can enjoy it of course this next this third book i'm writing is more geared towards uh, i'd say like young adults so teens so slightly older age demographic and it um isn't as much of a world building story and there isn't as many characters so it's a little simpler in that way but uh the story itself is it's still about like acceptance and some not so much about mental health, but definitely like challenges of a youth that's struggling with identity. Therefore, and then there's several instances or events that this person has to go through before they come to the space of acceptance, of course. The hero's um, so, journey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and not, a, not, a, not a traditional one either. So I'm hoping that it surprises some people. So. Awesome. So the last question is, if there was something that you could do or you would like to see done for mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, what would it be? Gosh, there's so many things. Um, I'd say that, I mean, it, it, it needs to be more important than football. You know, it has to be prioritized. It has to be glorified. It has to be. I love rewarded. that you said that. I love that you said that. I literally said those words like, like last week. Because yeah. we're, we're in that we're in here we're into this like whole sports thing and 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 giving rides to and and I'm like you know these these track meets go until like you know nine eight nine o'clock at night and then they have school the next day mm -hmm. and I'm just like does anybody care like so I don't want to interrupt <laughs> you but that was that was just perfect that's exactly and it's the it's a it's a paradigm shift you know what I mean it's a whole cultural shift that would need to occur yeah. It's hard to fight those things when the culture wars rage on by so many mm -hmm. loudmouth people that seem to have the bully pulpit all the time. But that's why mm -hmm. that's why that's why I do what I do though. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Fuck them. That's all that's all mm -hmm. we can do though, right? You know? Yeah. And let me just say this because I it's one of my favorites of I and I off the top of my head, Leo. Um, you know, if you want to change the world, start by changing yourself. He says something mm -hmm. along those lines. I believe yeah, absolutely. that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then Mother Teresa, you know, she said that quote, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family, which is what I did, but not by choice. I have to admit I'm not a saint. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> is anybody really? <laughs> uh, she's got me going up on that one for sure. But um, old Teresa. Yeah, old <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> You're so silly over there Teresa. in your sainthood. <laughs> awesome thank you so much for uh yeah. taking the time out today and, and sharing with us yeah well, thank you for awesome. having me thanks for having me it's been such a pleasure yeah jared thank you so much man uh you can find jared at jared bowl is it jared or is it jared yes. okay mm -hmm. it's jared i'll have all that in the show notes i appreciate you guys very much thank you we appreciate you so until next week will uh yeah timmy until next week be well be safe. Be above. Thank you for giving us a listen. New episodes every Wednesday. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can share, rate, review, and even subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Other ways to support the show? Follow us on social media. Share the content. Share our episodes. You can also buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash above ground pod. For further concerns, show ideas, or just to say hi, you can email us at abovegroundpodcast at gmail. Once again, thank you for listening and supporting mental health. Keep the conversation going and stay above.